you should have an outline that has uh, Lesson 9, Part 1. We got into it last time. I just want to do a real quick review. First point on the outline emphasizes the fact that the only way to avoid doctrinal error or heresy is to embrace the sufficiency of Scripture. Now, by the way, this, that's very different from the inerrancy of Scripture. And, and I don't know if I pointed that out the last time. Basically, the inerrancy of Scripture, fight for the most part, has been won, at least for this generation in most evangelical churches. Most people embrace the idea that the Bible is inerrant. Now, I'm talking about believers. I'm not talking about the heathen, obviously. That's not the fight. You know what the real fight today is? Sufficiency of Scripture. You say, well, what in the world's the difference? Well, inerrancy has to do with the fact that God... Uh, authoritatively inspired everything from Genesis through Revelation, okay? But here's the sufficiency of Scripture argument. The Bible is not enough. It's not sufficient. We need extra things. And this is where the Word of Faith movement gets all of these visions and these revelations and people have these dreams and they write these books because the Bible's not enough. I beg to differ. The Bible is all we need. And here's the problem. If you don't understand that fight, which is now raging heavily in America today among so-called evangelical Christians, you're going to miss the point of what's going on. They're not arguing that the Bible is not inerrant. They're arguing it's not sufficient. They won't say that, but that's what they're arguing. You need something more. Here's the problem. When we find that something more, how do we authenticate it? How do we know this directly from the Lord? Somebody gives me their dream. How do I know God gave them that dream? Uh, somebody gets a vision. How do I know that vision's from God? Somebody gets a word, a word of revelation. How do I know that that word is from the Lord? Somebody jumps up and, and utters something in a language I don't understand. How, how do I know what they said? And then somebody else jumps up and says, well, I know what they said and they interpret it. Well, how do I know they give me the right interpretation? Now, if they get up and say something in German or something in Spanish, we can find someone that speaks German or Spanish and we can get them to listen and say, well, here's what they said. But if they claim to be speaking a heavenly language or a heavenly gibberish, how can I know? I will never be able to verify or authenticate. Notice the stark contrast, though, in the books of the New Testament. They are clearly authenticated as letters of the apostles who served under the Lord, hand-chosen, and we know the authentication. The arguments have been made for centuries. We now know that the Bible is solid. Now, I realize that there are many in the world who don't believe that. I'm talking about among believers. The Bible is rock solid. We even did a series. In fact, it was the first series I taught when I came on staff here on the authority of the Bible and the reliability of the Bible. We talked a lot about the, the authentication of the, of, the, of the manuscripts from the Hebrew and the, the New Testament. Uh, I mean, Hebrew in the Old Testament, Greek in the New, and all of that. It's, it's completely reliable. So it's very important then that we embrace the sufficiency of Scripture. The Bible in, in numerous passages, I'm not going to take the time to read these because we did the last time, but all Scripture is given to make us fully complete as believers. And then I mentioned um, Justin Peters and uh, uh, Jim Osmond. Uh, Jim uh, is here on the left. Jim is a pastor in northern Idaho. Justin Peters is on the right, uh, an evangelist, but he specializes 
in strange fire conferences, which uh, strange fire is, is from the Old Testament where God told them, don't let the fire burn out in the altar, in the temple or the tabernacle. And if you build a fire there, that's strange fire. That's not the fire I built. And if you do that, the judgment of God is going to fall on you, which is exactly what happened to two of Aaron's sons. So this whole strange fire, this, this words from God that are not from God. So just, that's what Justin, among many things that Justin does. But Jim's, Jim's on the left, and, and he's done a series on spiritual warfare that's very, very important. And I gave you a quote uh, the last time, and, and I think this quote is, is very worthy because in, in this quote he talks about the biggest problem that we have with the sufficiency of Scripture issue is that we add stuff that's just not in the Bible. For instance, the idea that we have the authority, the same authority that Jesus has. Now, I read that entire quote uh, in, in the last lesson, so I'm trying to just kind of zip over this, but it's been a couple of weeks or three, and if you're like me, you've kind of lost ground here, so we have to kind of go back. So this idea that we have the authority of Christ, you say, well, what does that have to do with anything when it comes to demons? Well, in one of the areas that they emphasize in spiritual warfare and deliverance is you can speak with the same authority that Jesus did. Really? Now, that even, it goes a lot further, and for instance, there are a lot of guys who are probably Christian. I'm not questioning their Christianity, but I do question their doctrine. Uh, guys like John uh, McMillan, who has written a very well-known, popularly read book on the authority of the believer. And I, and I will read this quote again. He says, it has been pointed out more than once in this study, he's talking about the book, the authority of which we are speaking is the portion of every believer. It's not a special gift imparted as an answer to prayer, but the inherent right of the child of God because of his elevation with Christ to the right hand of the Father. Now, whoa, 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 whoa. You see how he quickly did that real, real slick? We do know that Jesus was elevated to the right hand of the Father. I, don't real, I didn't realize I was elevated to the right hand. Of, are you at the right hand of the Father? No. Well, see, what they do is they, 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 they do certain things by inference. Well, if you're in Christ, Christ is at the right hand of the Father. You're at the right hand of the Father. Well, I guess in a symbolic kind of way, yeah, he represents me at the right hand of the Father, but I'm not seated at the right hand of the Father. He goes on to say, he has become, through the rich mercy of God, an occupant of the throne of the Lord with all that implies in privilege and responsibility. Who's the he? Well, he's not talking about Jesus there. He's talking about you. You occupy the throne of the Lord. This elevation took place potentially at the resurrection of the Lord and because of the believer's inclusion in Him. It is ours simply to recognize the fact of this position, to take our place in humble acceptance, giving all of the glory and honor to God. It's a little hard to use the word humble and I'm seated in Jesus' throne in the same, you know, breath. This, is, now this may seem subtle. It may seem to be kind of a secondary issue. Friends, it becomes a frontline issue when we begin to claim the authority of Christ as though we are Christ. Now, yes, as his ambassadors, as his apostles, lowercase a, yeah, we operate in the authority of Christ, but we're not Christ. And, and this is where we have to be incredibly careful. So when Jesus sends out the apostles, yeah, they have the authority to cast out demons. They have the authority to heal. But notice Jesus says, that's not what you need to be celebrating. You need to be celebrating the fact that your names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And we find later on these men faltering. So Jesus would, would, would share his, impart his authority with them, but they weren't Christ. 
I don't recall any time Peter actually speaking to a storm and it stopped. Do you? I recall only once when he walked on water and just took a few steps and had the Lord not grabbed him, I guess he would have drowned. Jesus seemed to have no problem skating across top of that water. Peter had tremendous issues. And I don't recall ever again Peter saying, well, the other day I was out and decided to walk across the the Sea of Galilee. And I, I had a fine time just out there walking on water. So when we say that we have the authority of Christ, what does that mean? It's very important that we can biblically tie that down because if we're not careful, we can really make this say things that the Lord did not mean. Now, some would say, well, didn't Jesus say his followers would do greater works than he had done? Well, he did say that in John uh, chapter 14, verse 12. Greater works than these he will do because I go to my Father. Well, what, did, what works was he talking about? Well, Jesus' ministry never went beyond about 100 miles of Jerusalem. His hometown. I mean, it was just kind of a radius of about 100 miles. That's about it. Uh, so what, what was he talking about? Well, I think primarily he was talking about what the church would do corporately uh, to the point that in Acts uh, 17, they're accused of turning the world upside down. Jesus wasn't accused of turning the world upside down. He was accused of turning Jerusalem upside down and maybe some of the, the surrounding area. He was never accused of turning the world upside down. Jesus didn't minister to the whole world. And then Scripture goes on to tell us what the works of God are. In John chapter 6, what are the works of God? Jesus said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in Him who is sent. The greatest work of God is seeing that mankind is redeemed. That's the great work of God. Now you say, well, Dan, is that all there is? Well, no, no, of course not. I mean, we baptize We minister to people. So, yes, the work of God goes beyond that. But when Jesus was asked to to identify, to define the work of God, he says evangelism. Evangelism. Well, that ought to speak volumes to us. It ought to tell us then that that's why he gave as his parting uh, shot to the, the apostles and the early Christians what we now call the Great Commission. It's not called the Great Commission because we were running out of words. And so we said, well, it's a commission. It's a commission. What kind of a commission? Let's use the word great. It's called the Great Commission because it is the Great Commission. And you know what the Great Commission is. We're to go and teach them and make disciples out of them, not church members, not converts. So... You find, for instance, examples of how the apostles are doing greater works than Jesus right out of the gate. On the day of Pentecost, uh, the Lord is adding to the church, 3,000 are saved. On another occasion, uh, when Peter preaches on Solomon's porch or Solomon's portico after they had healed that lame man, uh, they have some some 5,000 that are saved. And this is just counting the men. So you've got 3,000 and one swath and an invitation. You add the women and younger people. You might have had, you know, three times that many on the day of Pentecost. So maybe nine, 10,000. In this particular event, you have 5,000 men saved. You can safely say, well, there would have probably been almost that many women and young people. So twice to three times as many. Now, how many invitations are you aware of that Jesus gave were somewhere between 10 and 15,000 were saved? None. Zero. You say, well, are you saying he couldn't have? That's not my point. I'm not saying he couldn't have. He spoke the universe into existence. 
That's not the question. The question is, what did he mean when he said greater works than than these that I've done you will do? Well, there's examples of it. So then the question has to be answered. Do we believers actually possess the authority of Jesus? Well, yes and no. We, we possess the authority of Christ in that we are ambassadors for Christ. We speak for Christ. The Holy Spirit indwells us. And so we are empowered by the Lord. There's, there's no question about that. In fact, the Bible tells us that we are spiritually seated in heavenly places in Christ. But you see, many of these... Um, Deliverance and Word of Faith guys take this and they go to seed with it. And so they start to imply that we're actually enthroned with Christ. Guys, even in eternity, we're not going to have the throne of Jesus. Even in eternity, he's always forever the second person of the Godhead. We will never be divine. I'll be glorified, but I will not be divine. I will never be a member of divinity, nor will you. You say, well, why would anybody, surely nobody believes that. Yes, I could play you recording after recording. In fact, we may do a series on that, uh, maybe next or I don't know. But, but from a lot of these false teachings that are embraced by people that we're little gods, that once you've been saved, you're a god. That is not taught in Scripture. They find some remote reference, but those are taken all out of context. You're not a god, and I'm not either, and I won't ever be. Do well, I rule and reign with Christ in the millennium? Yes, but with Christ. I'm not ruling as Christ. So there's a huge difference. But then he goes on to say, why are we seated? So that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches. The ages to come. He's speaking there of future even beyond our day. So let's be careful that we don't, we don't just, just jump off in left field. And then you'll have these guys... You'll, you'll hear them say, well, you know, I'm just going to, I'm going to rebuke the devil. Well, I find it interesting that the Bible says angels don't even do that. Angels don't even do that. And you say, well, they're not saved. Well, the Bible says that right now we're a little lower than the angels. It will not be until we're glorified that we're higher than the angels. We're below the angels right now, scripture says. We looked at that in the first part of this series. So, Jude tells us that even Michael, the great archangel, when he's debating the devil over the, the, protecting the body of Moses, and we can only I- imagine what that was all about, but even Michael did not rebuke Lucifer. He called on the Lord to rebuke him. Now you say, well, then all, all we need to do is just rebuke him in the name of the Lord. Well, that's not exactly what these passages are saying. What these passages are saying is that we need to understand our proper position. We do not have the spiritual authority to rebuke Satan as you often hear. Now, does that, does that mean that we shouldn't ask the Lord to rebuke him for us? That, that we shouldn't ask the Lord for help? No, of course not. Of course we, we want to ask the Lord for power and strength. But I'm telling you, I'm no match for Lucifer. I am no match for Lucifer, and you're no match for Lucifer. And if Michael understood his proper role, so that would seem to imply that Michael was a lesser rank angel than Lucifer was who became Satan. And he he retained that authority even though now it's a perverted, twisted authority. So I think these are things that we need to be careful of when we begin to tread into the spiritual warfare deliverance category that we don't start to strut around like we, we, we assume an authority that we don't have.
and that we, we brag about stuff that we don't even know what we're talking about. In fact, the scripture warns us about intruding into areas and boasting about stuff that we don't even understand. We don't even understand it, and, and here we're boasting about it. And by the way, if we're powerful enough to rebuke the devil, then why don't we just shut him down for good? I mean, I grew up, I grew up in church hearing people say, Lord, we ask you to rebuke the devil. Satan, we rebuke you. You have no place in this service. Well, why don't we rebuke him from the earth then? Why don't we do that? See, for those who claim to have the divine power to heal people, why don't we just go heal everybody? You say, well, not everybody might want to accept their healing. Okay, then you pass over them, sadly. See, I've never understood why faith healers don't visit hospitals. Now, you've heard me say that before. I don't mean to be silly, but come on. If I really had the ability to heal sick people by just touching them or praying over them, wouldn't I want to go to the hospital and just go from room to room and say, hey, listen, I'm here in the name of Jesus. I have the, the spiritual gift of healing. Would you like to walk out of here in five minutes? Because I'm telling you, those that Jesus prayed over and those that the apostles prayed over in the early days of their ministry, those people got up and walked off. That's not what you see with these modern faith healers. Why is that? Because they don't have that authority that they claim that they have. So we have to be very extremely careful. In fact, I find in Scripture that the only one who can really rebuke the devil is the Lord Jesus himself. And I find that the only way that Satan is going to be chained is when it comes time at the end of the great tribulation and the millennium begins. The book of Revelation says that Satan is bound in the bottomless pit by an angel, but it's not one of us doing that. I, I, I just, these are words of caution because we live in this, this, this age of great communication. It's very easy to write a book and put it out there. It's very easy to make a tape. Well, not tapes anymore, but, but uh, an, a, a message and get it out there digitally. And everybody and their dog is out there claiming all this stuff. And yet much of it is not actually sound biblically. You say, well, Dan, are you fearful? I'm not fearful at all. My greatest fear is not handling the Word of God skillfully and going where the Bible doesn't go and saying things that God didn't say. That's my great fear. And I believe that we as, we as Christians have to err on the side of caution when it comes to assuming things that I'm not quite sure that we should assume. So here, number four, but isn't Jesus our example? Aren't we supposed to do what Jesus did? Well, we are but how? Well, Paul tells us in Philippians 2 how we're supposed to do that. He says, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ. Now, what was it? He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death of the horrible death of the cross. We invented a word using the word crucifix or crucifixion. Excruciating comes from the crucifixion. This is the only word we had to explain the kind of pain that a person would go through in the crucifixion process. And notice then... Paul says in Philippians, to follow Jesus' example is to do this. Why didn't Paul in Philippians 2, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, take his throne and go around rebuking the devil and just be in charge over everything? Why didn't Paul write that? He could have, couldn't he? Wouldn't it have been easy to do? Would it have been easy for him to add verse 9 and say, oh, and by the way, on top of all that, you're in charge of the demons and the devil, and you just tell them to do whatever you want to, beat them up anytime you want. The Bible doesn't say that. 
And that's why I think we have to be incredibly careful. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 24. For, this, for to this you were called, Peter says, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. And then you can read on. So whenever the Bible talks about following Jesus' example, it doesn't say you need to get out there and heal more people than he did. You need to heal more blind eyes than he did. You need to straighten more crippled legs than he did. You need to rebuke more demons than he did. Every time the Bible says anything about us following the example of Christ, it has to do with self-sacrifice and, and being humble. It doesn't say anything about exalting ourselves and taking charge over the devil. Now, that doesn't mean then that I think we're just walking around this world and we're just the, the hanging in the breeze on a string and the devil can do with us whatever he wants. No, no, no. The Bible's clear about uh, our ability to stand up in, in spiritual warfare and stand strong. But it's very important that we don't tread into areas that are not ours. It's just very important. I, I, I hope... Well, I hope you're getting that. So being like Jesus is primarily talking about emulating his character, his humility, his godliness in the face of trials and temptations, not performing more dramatic miracles than he did. So are the miracles of Jesus normative for every believer? Do we have the power to work miracles like the apostles did? Well, I would assume that if you actually have the authority of Jesus, the answer to that would be yes. Didn't that make sense? I mean, if I'm enthroned with Jesus and I have his authority, wouldn't I be able to work the same miracles that he did? Wouldn't I? Wouldn't I be able to walk out to a tornado and just in the name of Jesus shut it down? Jesus did. I don't know what kind of a storm that was that he shut down, but apparently it was pretty rough because fishermen who were accustomed to being in storms out in the water were terrified that they were going to die. So it was a pretty fierce storm. And Jesus just said, peace, be still. The storm just stopped. Well, I don't see anybody doing that. I, mean, I don't see anybody. One of these big hurricanes headed toward one of our Gulf, uh, uh, coastal cities. Why, why don't all these guys that have the authority of Jesus go down there and shut those down? Just rebuke the hurricane. You've got the authority of Jesus. You've got his throne, don't you? You can chain up the devil anytime you want to, spit in his face and kick him in the knee. Why don't you just go ahead and shut down a hurricane? Well, it's because they can't. It's just like I told you when um, Oral Roberts said that he had raised so many people from the dead, he couldn't remember how many. Well, I, could, I, I guarantee you I could remember how many. And then they said, well, come on, give us a name. And finally, he couldn't come up with any names. What? You've raised so many people from the dead, you can't remember how many, you can't remember a name, and finally he came up with this child that quit breathing and then started breathing again in one of his services. That's not raising somebody from the dead. The fact is, Oral Roberts didn't raise anybody from the dead. That's the fact. Jack. So, so, so you know, it's just important, man, and people are sucked into this all the time. So number six, the ministry of Jesus and the apostles was unique was very, very unique, and it's not going to be repeated, at least I don't think until the Great Tribulation. Now, you do read about two witnesses coming from heaven, and they work those miracles, and it could be that some of the 144,000 maybe be a, a part of that, but I just don't believe we're going to see a replication of the ministry of Jesus and the apostles. You, when you read the scriptures, you find that common believers did not work miracles. Miracles were not commonplace. They're just not. See, the problem is we get the idea that they're commonplace because, you know, it seems like every time you open up a, a chapter in the book of Acts, you, you've got somebody 
being healed of this or you've got a demon being thrown out of here. Don't forget, and there's a note on here later, um, the book of Acts covers a period of 30 years. Covers a period of 30 years. And, there's, and we'll see in just a moment how many uh, uh, exorcisms there are recorded in the book of Acts. You say, well, does that mean there weren't any more? No, it doesn't. But if we start arguing from the silent part of Scripture, from the white part of the Bible, we can make any arguments we want, and that's where all this other nonsense comes from. That's where Mormonism comes from, the white part of the Bible. Jesus visited North America, and while he was here, he left these tablets, and they were buried in a special language, and this angel Moroni, which is a very appropriate name, at least the first part of it, um, visited Joseph Smith. He was 16 and shows him where these tablets are, and then he translates them for him and gives him a translation code book and tells all the story of Jesus being over here in North America and witnessing to all these tribes and all this kind of stuff. Goes into all these wars that occurred. So they've tried to archaeologically verify the Book of Mormon. And guess how much evidence they've found? Uh, zip. How much evidence have they found to back up the Old Testament claims and the New Testament claims? Every time they stick a shovel in the ground in the Middle East, they're finding evidence. Well, that's the argument from the white part of the Bible. That's where it comes from. So number six then, not every believer is an apostle with a capital A. And we better get that down. Now, there are apostolic Christians all over the country. And I'm not saying these people aren't saved, and I'm not saying they're going to hell. Please don't misunderstand. Don't, don't read into the white part of my speech. Uh, I'm not saying these people aren't saved. I'm just telling you, those people aren't apostles like the apostles either. And the proof of it is they can't do what the apostles did. Now, it's also important to understand that if you were going to be an apostle, and a New Testament apostle, and you, you may already know these, but it's always important to revisit this. Apostles had to, cert, uh, had to satisfy certain requirements that you couldn't be an apostle. Number one, they had to be hand-appointed by Jesus. You can see scriptural references to that. You couldn't just declare yourself to be an apostle. You had to be hand-picked. Now, people say, well, the Lord called me... Look, that's different from being handpicked. If you're going to say that just the fact that God called us into his grace, that makes you an apostle, then everybody alive in Jesus' day who was a follower was an apostle. And we know that's not true. The apostles were hand-chosen by Jesus. Second requirement, they had to see Jesus in his resurrection body. In fact, Paul uses this as an argument to those in Corinth who were questioning his apostleship. Really, times haven't changed much. If you can't argue with the message, attack the messenger. That's exactly what was happening in Corinth with Paul. There were people who didn't like what he was preaching, so rather than to debate him on a doctrinal uh, basis using the Old Testament, they just attacked his credentials as an apostle. They said, well, he's not a true apostle. And so he argues that one of his credentials was, haven't I seen the risen Christ? You had to see the resurrected Jesus. Now, Jesse Duplantis claims that Jesus showed up at his office, kind of depressed, and needed some counsel. And so he told his secretary to hold all of his other appointments that day. He's going to take care of Jesus and see if he can help Jesus out. Well, that's not what Paul's talking about here. And some of these other word of faithers that Jesus has appeared in the passenger seat of their car and they carry on a conversation. Let me tell you what, I'm running off the road if Jesus appears in the passenger seat of my car. 
This is, this is just ludicrous. This is just nonsense. Paul is talking about seeing the resurrected Christ, meaning that there were few people who could make that claim, and that was one of his claims to apostleship. And then the third requirement is they had to be able to work the sign gifts of an apostle. Paul uses that same argument in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He said, look, I've done the sign gifts, the signs of an apostle. Now, why would those verify that he was an apostle if everybody was doing them? Wouldn't that make everybody an apostle with a capital A? Of course it would. So to use, well, I've seen the resurrected Lord. Well, so have I spiritually. Well, that makes then every Christian an apostle. Well, I've worked the sign gifts an apostle. Well, I'm working all those miracles too. Well, see, then all of a sudden there's no, Paul, Paul's making arguments for nothing, and everybody could be one of the 12. Therefore, every Christian could write a book of the New Testament. Because that's one of the requirements for having a book included into the New Testament. It had to be written by an apostle. And if it wasn't written by the hand of an apostle, it had to be written by a close associate of an apostle with the oversight of an apostle, such as a Luke writing, for instance, the book of Acts. You see how important all of this is? So this is why then you've got modern day people claiming to be modern day apostles who claim that stuff that they write should be considered on equal grounds with the New Testament. Now you've got people like Andy Stanley and others who are rejecting the writings of the apostles, i.e. the New Testament, and are, are quickly becoming just the red letter, of Christ, uh, red letter Christians, which, by the way, is now an entire movement. And the only thing in the Bible that these red letter Christians will read or believe is stuff that Jesus specifically said and read because it's in red ink. They completely discount. If you quote Paul to them, they'll say, oh, that's just Paul. Do you realize what that's going to do to 2,000 years of church history? It's going to destroy it. Because the epistles were written to help the church to know how to function. Without the epistles, you have no bylaws. You have no way to function. And if you just read the red letters, and I'm not suggesting that we not be well familiar with the red letters, we should be, but without the epistles, how do you know how to ordain a deacon? How do you know who's qualified to be a deacon? How do you know who's qualified to be ordained as a pastor? How do you know how to do church discipline? How do you understand the doctrine of the Trinity? Uh, I, I mean, we won't. Un- how do you understand the gifts of the Spirit? Uh, what are the gifts of the Spirit? Well, if all the writings of Paul are just, oh, well, that's just Paul. And by the way, that's what they say. And then you've got guys like Andy Stanley who are adding to the insult by saying, and you ought to throw away your Old Testament. Unhitch, throw it away. Well, notice what they're actually systematically doing. They're systematically eliminating an authoritative standard so that anybody is the authority. So now, whatever somebody says, that's the authority if they can kind of look spiritual enough. That is a deep, deep problem. That's why I'm spending so much time on this before we actually get into the deliverance stuff because this is the area where people often go off in left field and go to seed and then they start believing all of this stuff that's simply not biblical. Now notice those three, at least those three requirements are given in scripture that somebody had to have and be able to prove before they could be considered as an apostle. Wow, I'm not an apostle. Not with a capital A, I'm not. Now, I'm sent. That's what the word apostle means, but it's lowercase. I can't work the sign gifts of, of, of an apostle. 
And by the way, you'll notice toward the end of their ministries, they couldn't either. Why do you think James says, if anybody's sick, go get them an apostle and heal them? Why didn't he say that? No, he says, now go to the elders and they'll pray for you. Well, why not go get an apostle or why not go get somebody with the gift of healing? Well, because by the time James is writing the book of James, the signs of the apostles are, are beginning to diminish because the apostles are passing off the scene. I mean, this is simple enough to understand. You say, Dan, are you telling me that God doesn't heal today? No. No, of course he, God heals. But he doesn't heal like he did through Peter reaching down and a man that's crippled, hadn't walked since he was born. Peter says, in the name of Jesus, rise and walk. And the guy's legs just go, thunk, and he begins to walk. You're not seeing those things. And there's a reason for that. Because we're not... Apostles like they were. Number seven, there's a difference between descriptive and prescriptive. I think this is very important and you need to catch it. The book of Acts is descriptive. It is not necessarily prescriptive. Christians actually have understood this for centuries up until the charismatic renewal and all the non-denom stuff. And that doesn't, let me reemphasize, I'm not saying that all these people aren't Christians. That's not, I'm not questioning their Christianity, but I am questioning their doctrine. You say, well, why does it matter then if they're Christians? Well, because if, if we are undoctrinal long enough, what happens to the following generation and then the generation after that? They won't have the slightest idea what Bible doctrine is. And so it's just roll your own. We do whatever we want to do. Well, what, what will that make the church look like? Well, far from what the New Testament church is designed to look like. So there's a difference between being descriptive and prescriptive. Just because it happened in the book of Acts doesn't mean it's supposed to be happening today. That's important. Let me give you one example. I know we're running out of time now, so we've got to find a good place here to land. um, And we'll finish this outline. I'll have a new one for you next time around. But, for instance, how about all of those who claim that the day of Pentecost should be happening every time a person is baptized in the Holy Spirit. Because they claim that. You ought to speak in tongues. They did on the day of Pentecost. Yeah, but there are two other miracles they conveniently leave out. Now, you probably know this, but it's just a good example. What about the sound as of a rushing mighty wind? Thank you, Miss Lucy. Do you notice they don't replicate that? Well, how about the other miracle? What was the other miracle? There was a flame above their heads. You say, well, what was that all about? Well, that's just a little uh, representation of the Shekinah glory. You remember the pillar of fire that led the Israelites? That's the same thing. Notice they don't replicate that. Now, why is it that they don't replicate those two? Anybody want to be brazen enough to say? Because they can't. That's why they don't. They can rattle off in some language, especially if it's heavenly, so you can't ever verify whether or not it's actually a language. They can do that. But they can't replicate the sound as of a rushing mighty wind or the, the, the flame above their heads that were on Pentecost. So should we then say that Pentecost is descriptive or prescriptive? Descriptive, not prescriptive. So, Dan, are you saying that Christians don't get the Holy Spirit? No. No, the Bible clearly teaches that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. We're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. 
We're regenerated by the Holy Spirit. But what I'm telling you is that Pentecost is not replicated in people's lives just because it happened on the day of Pentecost. So, I don't know. I had something there. Um, One last example and then we'll go. You take the, the story of Balaam and the donkey. You remember the story. Balaam's a prophet that's out of sync with God. And he's trying to go curse the Israelites. And he's on his way riding a donkey. And there's an angel in the, in, in the pathway blocking him. And the donkey can see the angel and Balaam can't. And so finally God literally causes the donkey to speak. Which is happening today in a lot of pulpits around the country I would probably uh, admit. But now here's the deal. Does that mean that every Christian ought to own a donkey just in case God wants to do that again? So maybe we ought to all own a donkey. So if God speaks through donkeys and we're really needing God's will, he'll, he'll speak through that donkey out in the back. Now, we laugh at that. But guys, that's the same mistake that is made by a lot of these folks. They say, well, it happened there and it'll be happening now. Really? When was the last time you knew someone that had a donkey that talked? Anybody? Any takers? No, of course not. That is descriptive. That is not prescriptive. Very important. You say, are are you saying, Dan, that God couldn't do that again? Did you hear that come out of my mouth? No. God can do anything he wants to do. But God tends to operate by his word, the principles laid down in his word, and we just need to be careful. So that kind of is getting us to the place now where you begin to talk about deliverance and spiritual warfare. But I think these things are so important that uh, we, we, have to, we have to visit them. I hope this is not redundant to you. I hope it's not boring to you. I hope it's helpful. I don't, I'm not railing on anybody. My, my good friend, Tony Spell, in, in Baton Rouge, is an apostolic pastor. Okay, now get that. He's an apostolic pastor. He and I would have great debates if we got into this because he and I are going to disagree. Now, I think Tony's as saved as I am. But he's apostolic. I would disagree with him on a good level. I couldn't preach in his church consistently because I'd make a whole lot of people mad, including him, and I'd be out of a job real quick. There's a reason why we believe what we believe. I had a guy one time visiting our church in Yukon, came from a Lutheran background, and he kept asking me why I wouldn't make uh, Trinity Baptist more Lutheran. And I said, are you just an idiot, Eric? I mean, is that just your deal? I said, why don't you go over to the Lutheran church and ask them, why don't they become more like a Baptist church? I said, if you want a Lutheran church, go to a Lutheran church. They're Lutheran for a reason. You're in a Baptist church, and we're Baptists for a reason. Does it mean we don't think Lutherans are going to heaven? No. But we don't agree with it. And there's reasons. So this is all important. So thank you so much for your attentiveness. Thanks for letting me run over a little. We'll pick up there next time. We'll keep right on going. All right?